The concept of a Mother's Day is not new. For thousands upon thousands of years, cultures have celebrated mothers. The ancient Greeks and Romans and other pagan people groups celebrated the Divine Mother or simply the notion of motherhood because it is in motherhood where we see the gift of life. Hundreds of years after these ancient feasts and celebrations in the Middle, Middle European world, in England, they celebrated a day called Mother's Day, but it wasn't what it's come to mean today. Rather, it was a lot like what they call Homecoming Sunday. Have you all ever heard of Homecoming Sunday in the church? I'll confess, until I moved to Atlanta, I never heard of a, such a notion as a homecoming except for as it applied to my high school. Apparently, in certain traditions, maybe certain regions, homecoming Sundays an appeal that a church will give to its parishioners far and wide to come back home to the church you grew up in. And in England, for hundreds of years, there was Mother's Day, which was go home to your mother church, as in a homecoming. That day kind of fell out of fashion as the Americans developed their own sense of Mother's Day, and it kind of blended together with the American version of it. But even still, how it began is not what it is today, which is something of a hallmark holiday where we say, thanks, Mom, with flowers, with cards. Certainly worth doing to say thanks to Mom for sure, but do you realize that the roots of our Mother's Day lie in radicalism? Prior to the Civil War, Ann Reeves Jarvis started Mother's Day work clubs. It was either Virginia or West Virginia, I cannot recall. But these clubs helped teach the local women how to care for their children. Then the Civil War hit, and these clubs began to unify for the sake of peace. Jarvis began new initiatives asking Union and Confederate soldiers to stop killing other mothers' children. Stop killing other mothers' children. Another incarnation of the day was to be called Mother's Peace Day. I just love how at the heart of the celebrated day was once the plea to return to your mothering church and then also a call for peace over factions and divisions and bloodshed. Friends, it's not a difficult task to divide and separate into groups, clubs, us versus them modes of thinking and organizing people. The great anthropologist Robin Dunbar has theorized that we can only maintain about 150 real relationships. I know, that might seem strange because I've seen many of you on social media and you have a prowess above all. You have so many fans and followers, retweets. It's hard to imagine that we can only have 150 friends when it looks like you have thousands. But when you really think of it, you may have thousands of contacts or thousands of people who are friends, but mostly they happen in and out of your life over the duration of your life. But at any given time, there really is only about 150 or so folks that you can maintain a certain level of intimacy and proximity with at any one time. Years ago, we had a church consultant come in and they did the demographic research around our building 
telling us who was there, and then they did the demographic research inside the building, tell us who we were and maybe how we could do a better job of making an impact in the community. That consultant stood in front of the group and said that pastors can only truly effectively pastor about 100 people. Making Dunbar's point hit home in the ministry profession. It's about 100 to 125 people that one pastor can effectively have this close of a relationship with at a time, which is why you see churches grow to that number and they go above it and they slide back down. If you want to grow beyond that number, you have to do something. You have to actually add staff or have an incredibly strong lay leadership that's more than just putting in a few hours here and there, because it's true. Human animals by nature are tribalistic. This is why our prehistoric tribalism makes so much sense. This is what the human actual, human animal can actually maintain. Which means that prejudice and suspicion of others might be baked into our biology. It's in order to keep us safe when we encounter outsiders from the group. When we were on the savannas and groups of 100 to 150 people, we were very keen to notice people who looked, sounded, or appeared at all different so that we could be on high alert. And I think we all know that we don't live in a tribal society any longer. We're in a global society here in the modern West, and we're technocratic. Things are a whole lot different than all those generations that go back on the savannas. But don't you notice that the seeds of tribalism still percolate underneath most things that we do? We're relatively tribalistic about our voting beliefs, our voting patterns, even our sports teams. I love Fenway Park, that rickety old shambles of a baseball park in Boston. I was there at a baseball game once, and I was sitting in center field, so logically, the seat was faced towards first base because it's a rickety old shambles of a baseball park. Anybody who's really ever seen a baseball game knows that all the seats should point to home, but this is the way it was, and so we're faced first base. And I saw some fellows ahead of me, and they're wearing Red Sox regalia from top to the bottom. These guys couldn't be more Red Sox uh, devo devoted. I mean, they, 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 they were just hooting and hollering for their ball team. But they were playing the Tampa Bay Rays at the time, and they had a center fielder named Rocco Baldelli. That's a cool name, isn't it? Hey, Rocco! I think that's a cool name. I'm going to need some par audience participation. I'm going to make you say that. That's a cool name, right? Thank you. So these guys who were cheering for the Red Sox, every time Rocco got up to bat, they held signs that said, and God said, on this Rocco, we will build our team. <laughs> apparently, Rocco Baldelli, who's from Providence, Rhode Island, which is Red Sox territory, apparently they, this guy was their hometown hero or their buddy. I don't know. They cheered for the Sox, but when Rocco Baldelli got up, they cheered for him. And the guys behind me whistled, and they said, hey. They said a bunch of things that I can't say in church, although it's funny to say it with a Boston accent. They said, don't cheer for Rocco no more if you do. And then there were some threats. So this is a far cry from going to a Cardinals game, let me tell you. 
So the next time Rocco got up, three innings later, they get up and start cheering for Rocco, and I felt something go by my face. It's one of those little Jack Daniels bottles, and it cracked the guy in the head, and next thing you know, they're out fighting in the stands. I thought, oh, I'm not in central Illinois anymore. Tribalism has grown into our modern world. And we know this to be true, whether we've instinctively noticed it or we've named it in our lives. We know it to be true right down here. And I think most of us have, in fact, named it because we've all been to high school. And I bet you right now, if I ask you about your cafeteria, you can see it in your mind's eye. You walk in your cafeteria and you know from memory where the jocks sat, where the mathletes sat, where the band kids sat in all the ways that we decide to separate ourselves from each other. Pastor, why are you talking about this? Well, I know it's Mother's Day, and I know it's Founder's Day, and I'm supposed to talk about those things in light of the gospel, but we're still in the sermon series on doubt, journeying through doubt or difficulties of faith, and it's come to me in an anonymous question, could I talk about how Christianity may help in some way, or why doesn't it seem to help more, with so much hate, racism, and xenophobia in our world. Now, I don't have to define hate. I think we all kind of get a sense of what hate is without definition. We all watched the Super Bowl against the Patriots. We all know hate. That was funny, I thought. (laughs) Racism, I think we all have some understanding of it, although I'm assuming that most of us including myself, have not mined the depths of it, means that we have some sort of bias, prejudice against people of another race. It might be systemic, it might be interpersonal, but it's on a racial or level of skin color. And then xenophobia, the bigger word, is this word that is applies to something more, but it's kind of they build on top of each other. To be xenophobic means to not like somebody, to have a bias or prejudice against them because they're from somewhere else. They even may share your own skin tone So today's sermon title is Mothers and Founders Against Xenophobia. And after thinking about how pandemically built we are to have tribalism in our hearts, is there any wonder that we would find tribalism and xenophobia and racism right here in the good book? It's all through the pages of our Holy Scriptures, what to do with it. Take, for example, the creation story in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Remember how it begins, in the beginning, let's try it again. In the beginning, in the beginning, God. Most biblical scholars think that the first creation narrative was penned in exile, specifically in Babylonian captivity. This is well after the time of the Exodus. And it's there when the ancient people of God would have been hearing other creation stories. There's one famous Babylonian one that talks about how there are two chaotic, warring deities, and they go to battle. One of them overtakes the other, rips that loser in half, throws half the loser's body up, makes the sky. Throws half the loser's body down and makes the earth. And what's the implication? Creation is born out of war and chaos. 
And then, much like the the biblical narrative of the creation of, of Adam out of the dust, creatures, human creatures, are made out of the dust of this earth. What's the implication about humanity? Humanity is born out of war and chaos. It's deep down in the human life. Now you have that story going on all around the Hebrew, the the tribes, if you will. And it forces them to pen their own creation story that has been told for generations from father to son and mother to daughter and on and on and on. And so they write their story in a rather poetic way. And it starts this way, in the beginning, God. It does not say in the beginning there was a God and another God and they had to do battle. It's just It's just God. It does not say, in the beginning, God and a cosmic Home Depot where God had to get the supplies. It just says, in the beginning stands God. You might say, if you were brash, that one of these Hebrews who were a part of the tribe could say to one of their Babylonian neighbors, my understanding of God is better than yours. And then, in the beginning, God created. And it keeps telling us everything is created. All these creatures are created on each day. And there's this rhythmic refrain at the end of every day of creation, whether it's the verdant green materials of creation or the animals or the the fish. At the end of every day, there's this refrain. It goes like what? And it was And it was good, not chaotic and warlike, but it was good. So at the end of it, if you were brash, if you were a brash member of the tribe, you might say to your Babylonian neighbor, my understanding of creation is better than yours. And then on the sixth day of creation, it says God made male and female in God's own image and likeness. And then you can say, if you're brash, My understanding of humanity is better than yours. You see, right on the first pages of our Bible, we have a story that is not simply a story, but it's a polemic meant to mark out the difference between one group from another group. It's meant to divide. Even in narrative storytelling, there is the risk and dangers of xenophobia. But it goes much worse. All you have to do is consider the so-called conquest of Canaan. You remember when God led Moses and the people of God through the wilderness for 40 years? And now it's Joshua's turn to go in and take the land of Canaan, later to be known as Israel. What does God tell the people of God to do with all the people who already inhabit that good land? Kill them all. Wipe them out. Now, If that's hard for you this morning, good, it should be. This isn't easy stuff. They don't wipe everybody out according to the Bible, and history and archaeology actually wonders if it ever happened at all. But the thing that we have to think through for a second is we have to ask the question, why is it okay? Why is it moral? Why why does God say to these people that they can dispense with all these other people groups? Some other words for this would be genocide. People have tried to answer that a lot in my lifetime, and I've tried to answer it in sermons as well. And I think one time I was really big on this idea that, well, they were just immoral, evil people. 
they're just immoral, evil people. They make a lot of bad choices. And, and then I get afraid when I look in the mirror, because I do too, so. But it's not even that. There is babies and children. Babies and children were a part of these people. What is going on here? Perhaps, perhaps the way we approach the scriptures is that we approach them as just giving us simple prima facie answers. Have we ever considered the fact that maybe we're dealing with people struggling to understand what God is doing in their midst and it's complicated? Or let's consider next the minor prophets, which I don't think we should call them minor prophets because that sounds pejorative. And in, in ancient Hebrew, these minor prophets would be on one scroll. I've heard people call them the book of the 12. I like that better. But if you read them side by side, you have some of the works that are written side by side at the same time that they actually have a different point of view about the outsiders. Take Jonah. You remember Jonah, don't you? God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to the Assyrians that they should repent. He doesn't want to because he hates the Assyrians. He, he hates them. And so he gets on a boat and, you know, there's a storm and people throw him off the boat and a big fish swallows him. It's all a really fun story. That fish puts him out on the banks of Assyria, Nineveh, and he preaches. And then he's angry because God is favorable amongst the Assyrians. But in Jonah, it's as if God is saying, you know, the Assyrians, they're okay. I'm going to make space for the Assyrians. Go look at Nahum. Go look at the next text. In Nahum, it's as if God, it's written around the same time, it's as if God thinks the Assyrians couldn't do two things well. God says, those Assyrians are going to be blasted from here to kingdom come because they're terrible and they're awful. Not only do we have the difficulty of these two books written by prophets at the same time about the same people saying different things about them, but then we have the difficulty of how to think about the people of God as they interact with God and how they view otherness. What are we supposed to do with this? Perhaps what we're reading, friends, is a reimagining with each writer of what God is like and what God is doing. Let me suggest to you that there is much that is confusing about how to read the Bible. And that's not such a bad thing. It is a set of texts worth wrestling with, and I think that if any good faith is to be found, it is found in a wrestling. I think there's wisdom that comes from a wrestling with such texts and traditions. Think for a moment of the things that we say about the Bible for a moment. We say the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We say that it's authoritative and instructional for teaching, useful. Confusingly, we call it God's Word. Why do I say confusingly? Because the Bible itself says that the Word of God is a person named Jesus, but then we call the Bible God's Word. And to make those connections, I think we've just kind of picked up on things we hear people say. We're going to actually have to do some work to make those two things fit for another time. So let me ask this. If it's inspired, and I believe it is, why wouldn't the Bible be many-layered? 
If it's inspired as we say and believe that it is by the Holy Spirit, why wouldn't we think that it actually has depth of meaning to it? That we're not always going to get at the meaning on a first reading or a simple reading, but that there's going to be more to chew on, more to sift through, that there's a treasure trove of wisdom to be gained if we just come to the Scriptures each time with love and curiosity. Not just in its own context, but our own. That the text may teach us something new at 45 than it did when we were 25. And if it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also penned by human people who, by the way, were edited by editors, sometimes a long time after they were written the first time, can't we admit that we're reading God's inspiration as it's mediated by human beings who lived in a real time, in a real place, in real circumstances that are so far removed from our own. Perhaps in the toolkit of our biblical interpretation box, we need to add the understanding that we're not reading a book that fell from heaven. Boom. Perhaps we need to realize that we're not reading the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. When I was a teenager, I thought that was real clever. But I think it's poppycock. I don't think that's what even the Bible's witness says about its own self, that it's basic instructions before leaving earth. I think there's so much more to engage. I think in pages when you meet God, it can't just be basic instructions. We're reading a book, inspired as it is, in which people are constantly trying to figure out ways to understand their world in light of God and thus understand God's own self. Now, there are more hairy scriptures out there, more difficult bits that we don't like to talk about in Bible studies because we want to come away with a bunch of inspiration. Philemon, for instance. You know what happens in that little book of Philemon in the New Testament? Paul has this slave that he has met that ran away named Onesimus. And he sends Onesimus home with this letter to the slave master, Philemon. And the letter basically says, he goes, go home, do your duty, go home to your master. It says to the slave master, accept Onesimus as your brother in Christ. But it doesn't say this. It doesn't say slavery is an immoral institution. Human slavery is wrong. And I really wish it did, don't you? Would it have made things so much easier? Didn't Paul know he was writing the Bible? Maybe there's just a whole lot more going on here. And we have to use our minds and hearts to engage where people are at as we read the story too. So when I come across these hairier thornier bits that are harder to just gain a short bit of inspiration from. I like to remember the big picture of the Bible, which often irons out some of the thornier bits. One way that I have been taught that I'll pass along to you is a tool, it's a metaphor, for kind of understanding this broad picture of Scripture. It's inspired by a fellow named N.T. Wright. It talks about the acts of a play in the Bible. In Act 1, you have creation. Act 2, you have the fall. That's where things kind of go wrong. Act 3, you have redemption, which is where uh, God is working to bring all things back under His own control. And then Act 4 is consummation, when God will make all things new. 
You can make more acts in there if you wanted to, but I break it down real simple. Four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And for Christians, the highlight of this divine drama is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is when God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ that we have the very highlight of the story, the climax of the narrative. The redemption saga is seeing its fulfillment. Don't let me let you forget what Jesus said. You remember Mark 11, 12 through 21? It's one of my favorite bits of the Bible, right? There's a, Jesus curses a fig tree, goes into a temple. They see the fig tree. Well, in the temple, he sees people doing what they do. They're buying and selling for the sake of sacrifices. It's Passover week. And he gets really angry. He turns over tables. He starts yelling at people things. He quotes from Jeremiah where he says, you have made my place, my house into like a robber's den. That's from Jeremiah. He's, he's criticizing the temple activity as being corrupt. But then he quotes, he quotes before that, Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, Isaiah is very angry at the people of God because they would not allow the foreigners, the God-fearers, to come nearer to God in the temple. And so back in Isaiah, Isaiah says, if you don't change your ways, God is going to destroy this temple like he destroyed another temple in years gone by. Jesus comes to the same temple generations later, sees the very same thing. The people of God are keeping the Gentile God-fearers who want to get near to God, the, the foreigners, the others, they're keeping them away at a distance. And he becomes angry. And he turns tables. I don't think Jesus cleansed the temple that day as people call this. I think he destroyed it with judgment. For it's only three days later that Jesus becomes the very meaning of a temple. The very meaning of the place where you go to receive forgiveness for your sins. The place that helps you atone from all wrongdoing. Jesus, the climax of the story, breaks through all tribalism. All regional hatreds, all racisms and xenophobias and says, let them all come to the father's house. You follow the way of Jesus like St. Paul did, and then you're, you're called to say more on it in the letters of the New Testament. When Paul reminds the church of Galatia, remember, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. There is neither, neither slave nor free. Gentile nor Greek, male nor female, for all who are in Christ are a new creation. This morning's text that we read to us, both from Revelation, two chapters apart, and what do we have in there except for these snapshots of life to come with God? I don't want to exegete them for us. What I want to do is let them live evocatively in your imagination today. Did you hear what it was saying there were these heavenly courts where the multitudes existed, where every nation, tribe, and tongue, where every part of humanity is represented, standing before the throne of the Lamb who's overcome all evil, saying, thank you, God. And that is the image for us that guides us. No matter what we see in one occasional story or historical moment or another, that that is the hope and shape of Christian faith. 
that we're working to see all be brought into the same throne room of God because of what Jesus has done to and for us all. This is a dream that I see parodied in our world everywhere. Marketers get a hold of it and they try to sell us images that if we all just buy the same shoe, then we can all live in harmony together or we can buy the world a Coke and we'll all be kumbaya sort of happy. The one that really gets me is when I spend lots of money and I go to Disney World. Remember the first time I was in seminary, I had to take that ride, that one awful, awful ride for penance for my sins. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. You know that one? What happens in that ride? You're on this little boat. You see different people groups. You can tell because they're wearing different clothes. Their faces look a little different. And at the end, you go through a bridge, and all the same people are there because their faces are still painted the same, but they're all wearing whitey, floaty, cloudy stuff. And that's my short term for the, the banal version of heaven that we have, whitey, floaty, cloudy stuff with harps. All I had to do is spend a lot of money to a mega conglomerate to get that feeling. Or for the real thing, I could turn my heart to the scriptures and follow their drama as they unfold into the heart of Jesus and extend an invitation to me and you and the rest of the world. So how can the church stem the tide of hate, racism, xenophobia? The question that I was asked to answer. Well, at least follow the great story of redemption in the scriptures and see where it leads. For one thing, it will lead to an undoing of all the illusory things we create that separate us because they are illusions. If that's too much to ask in church, which I don't think it is, let me commend to you the women, all the women who gave us Mother's Day, the spirit of love and peace that they have called for. Put down that which hurts each other for the sake of mothers. Or follow this mother church's vision. 97 years ago, and I've said it too many times, but I can't say it enough. On the founding documents, we said we would like to be a cathedral for the city. We want to have our doors open to all people for prayer, where no unkind word would be said about anyone's race or religion here. And I don't want to talk down to you, but 97 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, saying something like that seems to me to be fairly poignant. I wonder how much further we can go with that. Not to mention the fact that we sit on the site of land that was once blood-soaked at the Battle of Peachtree Creek, and what exists here now is a place of unity for people. It is a redeemed place. We can lean into our values of being a people of reconciliation, cultivation, and care, which all have something to say to this, but if we really can't get our minds around any of it, what should the church do? If we can't say the right words, we can live into what is the chief part of our worship every Sunday, which is this table where all are welcome to come because of what the one Savior, our Lord, has done for us. And no one is left out, but all are brought to the table. And let that Fill the imagination for how you live this world.